Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. As our climate changes, we try to build better models, but getting the details right is tricky. And getting the details right matters a lot if you're trying to predict how much sea levels will rise. But you need to know a lot of things about really small and seemingly inconsequential stuff like rivers on the Antarctic ice shelf and lakes in northern Canada. Plus, we find out about some of the latest research into carbon capture and storage out of Brazil. As the climate warms and the planet around us starts to change as part of climate change, one of the things that will happen is our ice caps at our poles will start to reduce. Not just the dramatic break-offs you might see on TV, but this more insidious and longer-term threat. If you cast your eyes and memories all the way back to 2002, a huge area of Antarctica, the Larsen B ice shelf, which is around, at that point in time, 3,250 square kilometres of area. It's talking huge amounts of Antarctica. That broke off catastrophically and then broke into a whole bunch of small pieces. That was a pretty amazing and destructively worrying thing to happen in Antarctica. But these kind of events, unfortunately, aren't uncommon. But scientists have been trying to understand exactly what the cause of such strange and unpredictable breakups in the ice shelf. Now, one of the big challenges of trying to understand all of this is to realise just how complicated the ice around Antarctica is. If you removed all of the ice and melted all of the ice in the large ice sheets around Antarctica, well, that would be enough water to raise the sea levels around the globe by 58 metres. Forget the one and a bit metres we're talking about on current projections. 58 metres is basically flooding most of the planet. But that's how much water is contained in the ice sheets around Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula. Not all of these ice sheets are the same. Now, there are some areas which are incredibly thick and dense sheets of ice. These ice shelves, almost. Um, and they are quite substantive. Almost, some some cases, three kilometres thick. If you think about how thick and much ice that is, that's hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of ice just sitting there. Now, the problem is, not all of the ice is that thick. Some are actually much thinner than that, only around one kilometre thick, particularly around the edges of this ice shelf, or the edge of the ice cap. And most of that one kilometre thick is actually below sea level. However, it does leave a significant amount, about tens of metres, somewhere between 10 and you know 60 or so generally metres, of ice floating above the surface above the ocean. Now, why that's a problem is that in the summer in Antarctica, it actually can get warm, and it's getting warmer than it has been historically. And that means that top floating part of the ice shelf is actually exposed. Now, in something a kilometre thick, you might wonder, well, what's a few ten, tens of metres? What's 50 metres in a 1,000? Well, the problem, as scientists have been trying to analyse, is... What happens to water on the top, or the, that part of the ice on the top, as it melts? And so researchers from a number of different universities, including Cambridge University, Scott Polar Research Institute, something led by Dr Ian Wills, and University of Chicago professor Doug McHale, have been working in collaboration with a number of universities and research institutes based on Antarctica to try and piece together what exactly happens to all this water and what can cause an ice shelf to break into 
tremendous amount of pieces as we saw in the Larsen B ice shelf in 2002. Now, if you think about this ice cube, effectively, floating above the surface, the part that's out of the water will get warm. It will bake in the sun. And if some of that melts, well, the water has to go somewhere. That ice will then melt, turn from solid water to liquid water, pools of water. Now, if there's some kind of slant or tilt in the ice shelf, then that's all good. You'll end up with rivers forming on the top of this ice shelf, which sounds amazing, but makes sense. The big problem arises if there's no tilt or if there's a local depression minimum inside of it. The same situation you get on land where you have lakes. If all those rivers then pool into a central area or a lake, you end up with a big aggregation of water in the one spot. The problem with that is that water is heavy and you're concentrating all that weight in one area that wasn't that heavy before. The scientists have predicted that, well, that would cause tremendous amounts of flexing and bending and changing. Because what will then happen is when it gets cold again, all that water will freeze and that lake becomes ice once more. Then in summer, more ice melts, comes, runs down into the lake and it freezes again in the winter. And you get this bending and flexing of this massive sheet of ice. And if you've gotten ice cubes out of an ice tray rack, you know that that bending and flexing is incredibly powerful and can shear quite easily. Which is exactly what they were predicting actually led to the incident with the Larsen B ice shelf all the way back in 2002. But to gather data and prove this point, they had to scatter a huge amount of sensors all over Antarctica, using helicopters, snow machines, and even their own two feet. They set up a lot of GPS logging pressure sensors, to basically measure the rise and fall of all of these different points on the ice shelf. And what they found is actually most of them were all moving up and down by several metres each day. Which makes sense, because remember, all of these are ice shelves floating in water. So of course, when the tide goes in and out, they will too go up and down. But once you take away the tidal signal, you found, well, you've left with one very interesting thing. Some of those sensors moved up and down a lot, still by, you know, half a metre or so, whereas others didn't move at all. The ones that moved up and down were the ones that were situated where there were lakes filling and draining over the seasons, where the ones that didn't have that filling and draining motion that were more flat, well, they actually stayed pretty stable. But what that means is that the ice itself is bending and flexing at those points of those lakes, putting it under immense stress and pressure. Now, this is one example of how scientists can use evidence from the past, build models, and then take experimental data from the present to try and make predictions about what will happen to our ice shelves in Antarctica and the Arctic as our climate changes and warms. Because we need to know how these large shelves of ice will change, break up, melt, freeze, refreeze over the coming years because it will have a huge impact, not only in the health and stability of those ecosystems, but also of the water levels in our planet. This is some great research out of the University of Chicago and University of Cambridge working together and published in the journal Nature Communications.
Now from fluctuating and changing lakes in Antarctica, all the way to the other side of the planet, we're going to turn our attention to small lakes that are scattered across Canada and Alaska in North America. Because that region, that boreal region, stretches all the way up towards the Arctic, not Antarctica. And researchers from Brown University, lead author Sarah Cooley, have been studying what is happening in this very significant area of the Arctic tundra. Now, that region in North America has one of the highest densities of lakes per square kilometre. And it's a really, really significant part of the Arctic tundra and boreal forest, which, for reference, is part of the Earth's northern hemisphere in a band from 50 to 70 degrees north latitude. Now, the problem with this area is that it's home to a, a huge and very critical and interesting ecosystem of forests and animals and tundra and a huge and huge amount of lakes. But one of the reasons why we really care about these lakes, aside from the ecosystems and the importance to the planet, is that these lakes are a major emitter, a natural emitter, of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane. So the problem is these lakes actually collect with runoff, carbon-rich runoff, from all over the region around them. And they pull that all up in the lake. Which makes sense. But the problem is, then the lakes themselves just emit huge amount of carbon through the sediment. As that sediment decomposes, it just emits that carbon into the atmosphere in the form of the carbon dioxide and methane gas. And that is a huge problem. But what is even more worrying for scientists is that we're not really sure exactly how these mechanisms work. And previous models had assumed that, well, these lakes were pretty much static in size and shape. But that has been shown not to be the case at all. Sarah Cooley, the lead researcher on this project, released an army of cube satellites to try and understand exactly what is going on with these lakes. Now, these 150 CubeSats are basically satellites no bigger than a shoebox. And you might wonder, well, what a satellite that big could have on board? Well, it actually, they all operate together as a swarm, and they have incredibly powerful cameras that are able to see down to the resolution of three meters. So for something up in space, being able to get a resolution photo down to three meters is pretty incredible. And they're able to image the entire Earth landmass in one day as the planet rotates beneath them, which is pretty incredible to think about. But basically, Sarah Cooley used the output from these CubeSats but then had to do some pretty incredible things to it. Because normal satellites from NASA or somewhere, or the European Space Agency, have a lot of precise information about their locations, which means you can map the photos very, very accurately down to their real locations on Earth. Not so with the CubeSats. They're not that sophisticated, unfortunately. So they had to do a very difficult process of making sure you could pass all that huge and huge amounts of data. Thousands and thousands of photos from 150 satellites. So how do you do it? Well, you develop a machine learning algorithm that looks for abnormalities. Let's say you have a picture of a lake, and then node lake, then a picture of a lake again, a picture of a lake, a picture of a lake. What probably happened in those days, well, was, yeah, there was a cloud over the lake, so you couldn't get a photo. Simple things like that. And that was what the researchers had to do to make this data work. But once they filtered through all that 25 terabytes of CubeSat data, they could actually see something pretty interesting. And that is... Out of the 85,000 small lakes that exist in North America, during the summer of 2017 of them, they all had huge amounts of variation. Some lakes 
added up to hundreds of square kilometres over the course of the season. The lake's size itself wasn't static. As it warmed up, more water ran off into the lake, and it grew. some grew and swelled in size. And if you think about just what that means for exposing and releasing carbon dioxide from the sediment, as a lake shrank or grew, that fluctuation exposes more or less amounts of sediment. More or less amounts of sediment means more carbon dioxide and methane gases released into the atmosphere. So having such a varied and changing lake system means that our models, which are trying to analyze the impact of releases of carbon dioxide and methane gases into the atmosphere, and thus calculate global warming and so on and what sea level rises, if those aren't factoring into one of the major, most natural polluters in the planet, well, that could be a huge problem making sure our models are more accurate. And what this shows is that we've been underestimating the amount of potential gas emitted from these natural sources, which is a huge problem. But now we've sort of identified that we can actually study and get a more accurate picture. We just have to treat things not as static, but as changing. Like with the seasons, rivers will also change, as will the lakes that they feed. And that's what these researchers have outlined. But using a very ingenious method, collecting a large amount of data from small satellites, these researchers have shown that you can actually get a really fine and accurate model on the changes of landscape, particularly in the Arctic tundra. Some great research at Brown University, which will shed some light into how our planet is changing in the future. It's published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. So of course, natural sources such as lakes and sediment are an emitter of carbon dioxide and methane, greenhouse gases. But by far the biggest pollutant is still humankind and the various industries that we have, whether it be agriculture to burning fossil fuels. Now the problem with all of these is that trying to capture that carbon and prevent it from getting into the atmosphere, capture the carbon dioxide or the methane, means that we need to do something with all that gas that we create. Now there's two problems with that. gas in its gaseous form, likes to expand and take a huge area of space. So actually storing it is quite difficult. Then if you don't want to store it in its pretty natural state, you have to compress it. You have to elevate it to a higher pressure, which then requires careful management, which is an ideal for long-term storage. So what can you do? Well, researchers from the Sao Paulo Federal Research Institute and together with the University of Sao Paulo have been trying to find a way to turn some of the Brazilian oil wells that are extracting oil from 2,000 metres beneath the ocean surface down on the sea floor into caverns to store carbon dioxide and methane gas generated as part of the oil extraction process. Now this idea is called carbon capture and storage but what is interesting is going to happen in Brazil is they're going to do this deep under the ocean and inject all these gas, compress them down basically into a supercritical state where it has the density of a liquid which is quite good, very dense, and the viscosity of a gas, so easy to move around. But it requires pretty interesting gas turbines to compress all of these gases into that state. But they're actually being stored onto the oil wells themselves. So the oil well will extract the oil and the leftovers, some of these emissions, instead of being released into the atmosphere or otherwise processed, will be compressed 
and pumped back into the very cavern they were extracted from. What this means is you end up filling a cavern roughly around 450 metres by 150 metres in size, full of this supercritical gas. And because methane and carbon dioxide have different densities, they actually sort of float off and separate themselves into two distinguished layers. And this is pretty exciting because it means that a lot of the emissions from oil extraction can be captured and removed, not just put back straight away into the atmosphere. Of course, that still leaves the emissions generated by the burning of oil, but you're greatly reducing the carbon footprint of such things. But the same technology, if proven is successful when the first trial comes online in 2022, would be like exactly how we, you know, carbonate drinks in the food industry. But you could use the same technique to apply to other industries as well, not just oil and gas. Any other types of extraction could use the same technology. But also you could bypass the extraction step and just pump the gas straight back down to it, provided there was a suitable cavern, to store large amounts of gas from anything else, maybe another type of emission source. And it's these kind of technologies that we need in order to make our fossil fuels clean. Because as our planet warms and our climate changes, we need to make the fuels that we're using currently, until we have full renewable technologies, they need to be as clean as possible. And we need to counter any impacts we're going to have. So carbon capture and storage is a good way to try and improve that but we're still a long way off by having a really viable and simple technology, which is why University of Sao Paulo and the Sao Paulo Research Federation are trying to change that by actually doing some active trials to test new technologies. There's some great research at the University of Sao Paulo. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From analysing lakes in the Arctic tundra to trying to piece together the puzzles of why Arctic ice sheets should crack, plus carbon capture and storage research out of Brazil. All this week as we studied the changing climate. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.